0: begins, it continues and ends with strategic relational evangelism. Well it's uh, great to be here back again in Oakland Street after our, our time at, uh, at the bridge. So it's, um, yeah it's nice to, to be with all of you. Okay, so uh, we're continuing here in our series through the book of Matthew. And uh, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 23. Matthew ten, sixteen to 23. I'm reading here out of the New King James. Behold, I send you out as sheep... In the midst of wolves, therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver brother to death and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in the city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue in this second major sermon in Matthew, the Sermon of Commissioning. I pray that we would take these very practical, but also troubling words of Jesus to heart. Father, my goal here is to to stir us up into into a kind of, of willingness to embrace this life that I know is very daunting and very challenging, but I pray for the grace to believe your word to have faith as we read, and then the humility to repent where we need to repent. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so so let's just review. I think you all know that I like to keep in mind the structure of where we're at. It's, it's very easy when you read a book to get lost uh, in the trees and miss the forest. And so we won't review all of Matthew, but just kind of high level, five to seven, Chapters 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount right. And we, that's Jesus' teaching where he gives a, a large block of, of commands for his followers. And then Matthew 8 to 9, we call that the Sermon on the Move, on the Move right. That was Jesus putting into action what he just <laughs> taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And as he does that, there's the beginnings of hostility that he, he incurs from various leaders, Jewish leaders. And then at the end of chapter 9, there's this very important hinge where he, Jesus looks out at people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Good. I'm liking, I'm liking the review capacity here. Sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless or or mangled. And what he he basically does in that that moment is he then turns to his disciples and says, okay, you're going to pray with me. This is Jesus' one prayer request, his only prayer request in all four of the Gospels is to pray for more laborers to go into the harvest field to fix this problem. Okay, so... What's the problem? The problem is that sheep are without a shepherd. The existing leadership model is broken. It is completely failed. And so what does Jesus do? He tells his disciples to pray. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, he calls by name his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, to remedy the broken leadership model, right? So he's, he's done with people being like sheep without a shepherd. And he wants to fix that by calling the the twelve disciples. Okay, so in my last message, which was last month, what Jesus does is he calls the the twelve, he empowers them, and then he sends them out as their very first activity as formally recognized disciples on an evangelism campaign. Okay, and he tells them to start at home. He tells them to start start with the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, so that word sheep should be a connection between the end of chapter 9 because he looked at people as they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, okay, now you go to the lost sheep of Israel. Same word there. And he thrusts his disciples out into, into Israel, into Galilee in particular, and gives them instructions about how they're going to, to function as Jesus' disciples. Now, last time, and you probably won't remember this because we only covered it once, and I'm using an outline here from Dale Bruner. This speech, okay, so Jesus has how many big speeches in Matthew? Five, Five, right? Very important. Five, which parallels Moses' five books, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The first speech is the Sermon on the Mount. The second speech is this one here. It's Matthew 10. It's sometimes called the Sermon of Commissioning, different names for it, but it's broken up into three pieces. Last time we looked at the first piece. The first piece is travel instructions, that's verses five to 15. The second piece is trouble instructions, that's what we're gonna look at today, 16 to 23. And then finally, trust instructions, 24 to 42. This is an outline from Dale Bruner. So travel instructions, trouble instructions, trust instructions. And we know that this is a real division because every one of those sections ends with Depending on your translation, assuredly I say to you, or truly, truly I say to you, every one of those blocks ends with Jesus saying that phrase. Okay. I just, because I'm sure somebody will have this question, and I'm actually not really going to deal with this too much. We did a whole hour on this at at the Society for the Two Tasks, our apologetics group. Verse 23 is it's the last part of 23 especially, is a very controversial verse. It says assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay, so what does that mean? As I said, we did a whole hour on this. I'm just gonna give just a tiny little snippet here. If you wanna talk to me afterwards, you can. I'm really not gonna be dealing with apologetics issues. I wanna be more on practical issues. I'll just say that there's six ways of reading this. This is one of these verses that there's not a real great consensus on at any period in history. I'll give you my leanings, just leanings. I I don't have uh, a high degree of conviction here, but I I do have some some inclinations about what this means. So there's a very popular school of thought that was especially dominant in the early 20th century. uh, Led by someone named Albert Schweitzer. Does anyone know Albert Schweitzer? No. Okay, I'm not seeing a lot of heads. So he was, a, he was a physician who turned theologian. And Schweitzer was a very brilliant individual, but he was famous because he thought that Jesus thought the end of the world would happen during his lifetime. And then when Jesus is hanging on the cross and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's sort of Jesus like being disappointed that his expectation was not met. And there's a whole group of people who thought that, generally from a more um, liberal persuasion in reading the Bible, but we should know about that. Obviously, I disagree with that, but we should know that some people do interpret the Bible that way. Uh, There are some people who interpret this line very simply. John Chrysostom just says, he he interprets it that Jesus was basically just going to meet them before they finished going through all the cities. Very simple, very straightforward. There's a lot to commend about that. And you have the benefits of an early Greek speaker. There are many people who think that what Jesus means here by, you won't finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, is about the resurrection. And that's because this phrase, Son of Man, Son of Man comes from where in the Old Testament? What's the key? Huh? Daniel 7. Daniel 7, yeah. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man, he doesn't come to the earth, he comes to the, to the Ancient of Days, And he's given authority over people and nations and languages. And so if you interpret Son of Man coming in the Daniel 7 light, you would interpret that as basically the coronation of Jesus, which is his resurrection. Welcome. Uh, There are another group of people who interpret this as the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes in a in a wider capacity in Acts 2 through the Holy Spirit. That's the fourth interpretation. The fifth interpretation, which is very popular among many commentators is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So they, uh, and if if you wanna know more about any of the merits, pros and cons here, ask me later. But there's a a lot of people, Dia Carson, R.T. France, people like that who would advocate that Jesus means coming in judgment here. And so they won't finish going through Israel before AD 70. And then there's a final interpretation, which is that Jesus believes it's going to be a long time before the end. And so the mission to Israel won't be done until the second coming. Basically, if you read it in that light, it sort of makes sense. You won't finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In other words, like you're not going to finish this before even the second coming. Okay, so those are the six main views there. Uh, So the Schweitzer view, Jesus was disappointed, he was mistaken. Second one was just a simple travel instruction, Chrysostom's view. Resurrection was the third one. Fourth is the coming of the Spirit. Fifth was eighty seventy destruction of Jerusalem. And then finally, the second coming view. My own belief is that prophecy, as is usually the case, is multi-layer. And often Jesus and the prophets, when they make a statement, there's multiple layers of fulfillment. And I I think that probably at least two of these are true, except for the first one, first one I reject out of hand. But out of the remaining six, I think two or maybe even three of them could be true at the same time. So I don't think we need to necessarily pick and choose there. Okay, so that's all I'm going to talk about on that point. What I want to do is spend a lot more time and a lot more focus on the practical aspects here. That can be a little bit more of a heady, apologetic debate that's not super practical, which is not what I'm trying to do here. Okay, so what I'm going to do here, and I hope you're taking notes because this is a very important passage, is we're going to look at, I'm going to give you six points straight from this passage here that I'm very confident are areas that we need to be very seriously examining ourselves over. Okay, so my first point is that the true Christian message inevitably incurs hatred. The true Christian message inevitably incurs hatred. Okay, so why do I say this? And why does this make sense? You, you can sort of feel that in when you read the passage, Jesus promises a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution, right? You, hopefully that's obvious when you read it. It should be even more obvious when you think about what the disciples are actually doing. So I made this observation last time that the word lost, when he says go to the lost sheep of Israel, it is the same word as perishing. And in fact, perishing is, I think in this case a much better translation. So basically what the disciples are doing is they're going to people and telling them that they are perishing. They, they are viewing them through the lens of, I'm on this campaign to rescue people who are perishing. Now we all know that is not a popular message. It's not today, it wasn't back then. People of all stripes, all throughout history have generally felt, I'm okay, I'm fine. I got my system, my little world's okay. There's a thousand ways that you can be complacent. In the church today, there's a million reasons why you can be complacent. And if you go to some person, some church, some individual in the world, wherever you go, and you say, you're perishing, that's not going to go over too well. But Jesus, as we said, sees people as perishing. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, people who are uh, sheep who are harassed and helpless. In verse 13 this is intense. I mean, I think this is really intense. Did you see, did you see what, this is just from, from last week, but what, what does Jesus tell his disciples to do in verse 13? He tells them to, when they, when, uh, when someone is not worthy, and we'll come to that word in a little bit, he basically says, retract your peace from that house. Okay, so like, I don't know how many of you have ever done that, but like actually gone into a place and say like, hey, I I previously pronounced peace and blessing on you. I can't do that anymore. I'm I'm gonna take it back. And then to add salt to the wound, as they say, you're then supposed to, as you leave the house or the city, shake off the dust from your feet in some kind of a public ceremony and say, this is how lost you are. I don't even want your dust sticking to my sandals. Okay, so this is not exactly like feel good, type relationships, right? This would be something that people would be like, and he did what? She did what? Um, this, is, this is heavy, very, um, very offensive matter that, that is occurring here. In verse 15, there is a statement about uh, it being more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that place on the Day of Judgment. It is a huge... Offense, according to Jesus and his disciples, to reject the word of God, to reject this apostolic message. Okay, so, so it, it should be obvious here that, that this is not going to be popular. Now, we live in a world today, especially today, where like, buzzwords are be relevant, be engaged. Uh, uh, you know, don't, d- don't be that guy. Don't be that person who's the weirdo who's like the Jesus crazy person, right? Like that's, that's what our world is about. In addition, Jesus plants in them the image in verse 16, and we're gonna spend a little more time on this in a moment, that they're going to as sheep among wolves. Now wolves is not a flattering picture for a group of people that you might be with, right? Imagine you go into a place and you think, okay, I'm conceptualizing you as a bunch of wolves, okay? Like again, not gonna make you feel good, not gonna give you goosebumps of, of pleasure when you hear that. <clears throat> so this is, is a, a range of factors that are going to make people feel, the, the, the recipients of this message feel quite, quite angry, quite offended, as, as I can understand. Now we know, that this continues into the time of the early church after the New Testament. It's very interesting to read. Uh, I read quite a bit of the early church in preparation for this. And the uh, to read people like Tertullian, uh, who, who talks about this a lot, or Clement of Alexandria, that consistently the early church had got a lot of, of flack, a lot of verbal abuse from people about like, hey, why don't you go to the theaters anymore? Why don't you go to the circus anymore? Why don't you dress the same way anymore? Uh, Those two issues, entertainment and fashion, came up a lot in the early church. And for that reason, we always need to be aware in our minds of the drive to rub away distinctives. There's always going to be a pressure to do that. Um, I'll read you a quote from Clement of Alexandria who says, they persecute us not from the supposition that we are wrongdoers, but imagining that by the very fact of our being Christians, we sin against life. Isn't that an interesting expression? He says, they're not saying we did anything wrong, but that by being Christians, we sin against life. Uh, that just normal life, like you all just like bother us. You're, you're just people who, who irritate us and you destroy the fabric of what life is. Okay, so my first point was the true Christian message inevitably incurs hatred. My second point is that discipleship begins, continues and ends with strategic relational evangelism. It's a long point, I'll read it again. Discipleship begins, it continues and ends with strategic relational evangelism. Okay, so let's, let's talk about this. Especially my choice of the word begin. Now you might be troubled that the very first sermon that Jesus gives where he specifically gives instructions to his disciples, the so-called sermon of commissioning, is about evangelism, right? These are brand new followers of Jesus that have been followers for weeks, maybe months, not a long definitely not years. So weeks to months they're they're followers of Jesus and what does Jesus do? He sends them out on these evangelism campaigns. Now you're probably thinking, wait a minute, are they ready? Don't they need more training? Like, this seems awfully quick to go from just following Jesus to being sent out. I, I will say, though, that this, this actually makes really, really good sense with what we've already seen in Matthew thus far. The very first words, literally the very first words that Jesus speaks to, to uh, individual disciples he first calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. Literally the first line out of his mouth is "Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Yeah, fishers of men or fishers of people. First line, okay, is is okay, "Follow me and what's going to happen? I'm going to I'm going to make you into a fisher for people." Okay, so it shouldn't be surprising given what Jesus has already said and literally the first words out of his mouth in Matthew that that's the subject of Matthew 10 in fact Jesus is going to end Matthew you all know this Matthew 28 ends with the of course the Great Commission right uh, go into all the world and make disciples of, of the nations and and so he starts his words with disciples with to his disciples with okay you're going to become fishers for people and he ends in Matthew 28 with that okay so like it's like blindingly obvious. This is like an A to Z type feeling you're supposed to get here. Okay, and in case we're really slow and really don't get it, then we could ask, okay, after Jesus dies and is resurrected in the book of Acts, is evangelism prominent in Acts? Is it maybe there a little bit? Yeah, like the whole book, right? From chapter 1 to 28, that's what they're doing, right? This is what they're doing. Like this this should not be Something that like, you just like, you get a hint of here and there. This is just stated again and again and again and again. Okay, and of course, uh, so much of, of the gospel, so much of Acts, not just the beginning and the end, is filled with this. Uh, so uh, when I was in, in college, I started college in 1991. Uh, hard to believe, more than 30 years ago now. I had a, a, a powerful experience meeting God my senior year of, of high school and when I was in college I determined that I was going to be a a fisher for people and so every Friday night basically for my whole college experience I would get as many people as I I could on campus and I was like hey everyone we're gonna go evangelize join me now I lived in this was in Southern California a city called Pasadena and it was a it was kind of a wild mix I would I didn't really know what I was doing, but we would do. I would do street preaching. I would do one-on-one uh, conversations. I would go anywhere and everywhere and get as many people as we, as we could to do that. And I will say, be the first to say, I made a ton of mistakes, ton of mistakes in that. Uh, but I will also say that even though I said a lot of foolish things and I would have done things very differently, it was definitely the right foundation to be laid. And as I look back now at my college experience with the benefit of thirty years of of hindsight, that was. One of the dominant, if not the dominant experience of my Christian life was just going out and doing so much evangelism every week, and definitely even during the week. Um, I'm, I'm glad for that, and I want us all to, if you haven't had that, to, have, to make that be just the, the substance. I want you to, to look back at your Christian life and just say, like, wow, it was filled with evangelism, even if you make mistakes. And the disciples are going to make a lot of mistakes, as we'll see later on. Now, I use the word strategic in this heading. So I said discipleship begins, continues, and ends with strategic relational evangelism. I use the word strategic because I think it's, it, it nicely captures what Jesus says. Did you see in verse 11, uh, which was from last time, Jesus says, Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. Axios is the Greek word there. And... Um, We won't get into all the technicalities here. I'll refer those who are interested to the work of JL McKenzie, who studies this word very carefully and concludes that the best way to understand the word worthy here is receptive, receptive or open. Okay, so it's a very scholarly study that looks at Sophisticated Greek, we won't get into that now. But basically, if we think about it there, what Jesus is saying, whenever you go to a city or town, inquire in it who is receptive. Okay, so what are the disciples supposed to do? They're they're not supposed to just show up. They're supposed to do some homework. They're supposed to do some research and ask, okay, like who in this place is actually going to be receptive? And then, this is all strategic. In, In 23, he says, Jesus says, when they persecute you in the city, flee to another. Okay, now... I want you to think, most of you know this, about how the Apostle Paul operated. This is exactly how Paul operated. He would go into a place and eventually he would get run out of the city, he would get chased out of the city, and he wouldn't be this sort of like overly clingy person that would like hang around the city walls, Oh, maybe, maybe somebody's gonna let me back in and I can just... No, he would go to some new place and start there. We should all be grateful for this because this is how the gospel actually spread. And it's important that we learn sometimes not to belabor efforts on those who aren't really interested. I think sometimes it's very easy to stay with a person or a group that isn't interested or even hostile. And and you think, well, wait a minute, there's an opportunity cost here. Maybe it's time to move on, like Jesus instructs here. Uh, I think this is another example of the Sermon on the Mount in action, where Jesus says, don't put your pearls before swine. Don't take valuable things and put them in front of people who don't even want it. Like that, That's not dignifying of the gospel or even productive activity. <clears throat> okay, so, so this point here, I, I, hope you, I hope you hear me on this point, because it really is so important. Discipleship, I said, begins, continues, and ends with strategic relational evangelism. The relational part, I talked about that in the last sermon. I won't go over that here. I want you to honestly appraise your own walk, okay, your own Christian walk, and say, you're standing before God, and you have to honestly say, did my Christian walk begin, continue, and end with strategic relational evangelism? Is that, is that the fabric of my Christianity? I will say that I believe a lot of us need to do some repenting here. I really believe that this is the cause, and I'll get into this more, of a lot of problems in the church, is just basic disobedience to this pattern that Jesus lays out again and again and again and again and again. Okay? And you can't you can't substitute this. There's nothing, you know, you can't just say Oh, well, I don't feel like it, or I don't want to do it, or there's some excuse. No, that's that's not okay. In fact, to even more heighten the stakes here, what does Jesus say in verse 22? Look at verse 22. I want that to sink in. He who endures to the end will be saved. He or she who endures to the end will be saved. So, what is the context of this? He's talking about evangelism in the midst of suffering here. Okay, so enduring to the end will be saved. There are many people, and we're going to see this in Matthew 13 later on, who start off their Christian walk with, with some some promise, some life there, but they die. It doesn't progress. Jesus says here, if you want to actually make it to the end, this enduring, he means here, evangelism in the midst of suffering or persecution. Right, That's the obvious context here. So, you can't endure if you're not doing it already, obviously. Uh, so I want you, again, to really, really think about this. Another passage, 2 Timothy 2.12. 2, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So again, I ask you, did your Christian life begin with evangelism? Is it now marked by it? Is it marked by it? Just ask the people around you. Is it marked by it? Will it end with it? Because I care about all of you, I want to be straight with you, I think this is a really pervasive sin in our age today. It is a sin of omission, admittedly. We live in a world where it's very easy to focus on sins of commission, right? You can look at uh, t- telling a lie or pornography or gossip or something like that. Those are, those are definite sins for sure, but the sins of omission are just as important as the sins of commission. I I feel that to neglect this is to lack the faith of Jesus, faith in Jesus, who sees perishing people. It lacks obedience to Jesus, who calls us to this enterprise again and again. Okay, let's go on to my third point. My third point is that, and this is really putting together just the first two points, okay? This is intended to be just a one plus one equals two exercise here. So I said my first point was the true Christian message inevitably incurs hatred. And I said the second point is that discipleship begins, continues, and ends with strategic relational evangelism. So you add the two together. Christian suffering and persecution primarily come from evangelism. Okay, Christian suffering and persecution primarily come from evangelism. Okay, so it's easy for us to to confuse this. You know, I hear this sometimes in... I don't know, inside I think like, eh, I don't really think you're, you're being very biblical in the way that you're expressing things. Okay, so I'll use the example of somebody who gets cancer. Okay, I used to take care of cancer patients, leukemia patients and lymphoma patients. And uh, sad disease, tragic disease, no uh, really, really uh, terrible, uh, if you've ever seen someone die of that. That is a valid form of suffering but that is not specifically Christian suffering. People in the world have cancer. Lots of people get illnesses, and these are terrible things, tragic things that we we want to allow for and sympathize with, but we want to distinguish that from specifically Christian suffering. Uh, My wife is at a funeral as we speak, and uh, someone, uh, an uncle died there. Someone, a loved one passing away, he, was, he just got sick and died. It wasn't anything specifically Christian. We can invoke sometimes terms and, and biblical verses about, about suffering f- for God and things like that. And I think like, okay, you might be suffering. That's true. But that's not specifically Christian suffering. Or having a lot of homework. Or stress at work. right? These, these are, again, okay, fine. These are all normal things. But we want to distinguish these things from specifically Christian Suffering. Suffering that comes, suffering and persecution that comes specifically from evangelism is what is being spoken about here. And I'll read you a a quote from Dale Bruner, actually two from Dale Bruner who who says it well. Actually one and then I'll wait on the second one. Troubling, suffering problems. These are are to discipleship what water is to a fish. Discipleship's environment. Trouble is the habitat of Christian work. Very interesting, isn't it? I'll read it again. Trouble Suffering problems, these are to discipleship what water is to a fish. Discipleship's environment. Trouble is the habitat of Christian work. Okay, so I want us to, to be thinking about even when Jesus says things like, blessed, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted. What does he say there? Yeah, uh, bless, right, exactly. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, these are, are specific promises of blessing, not to, again, general suffering that is, is, is out there. Uh, he actually, Jesus, the full sentence is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So this is specifically being persecuted for things like, as I mentioned in the early church, they suffered a lot for changing entertainment patterns, changing fashion patterns. Uh, these, were, these are our common uh, challenges that they faced. Okay, point four. Jesus' way dethrones the idolatry of family and comfortable religion. Jesus' way dethrones, and I use that, Expression carefully, the idolatry of family and comfortable religion. Okay, one of the major themes in Matthew, we're going to see this again and again, is family gets reconfigured. Uh, there's, of course, the biological unit of family, your parents, your siblings, your children, all good things. But one of the things that we learn in Matthew and that Jesus is going to call for again and again is for one not to be primarily loyal to one's biological family but to Jesus's family and Jesus is going to model this for us later on okay now verse 21 is a chilling statement where he says now brother will deliver brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death okay so Wow, that's a that's an intense verse here. Jesus is going to say things like I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to divide families. And I'm going to read you a quote from Bonhoeffer here that I really like that captures this. He says, "The cross is God's sword on the earth. It creates division." the son against the father, the daughter against the mother, the household against its head, and all that for the sake of God's kingdom and its peace, that is the work of Christ on earth. No wonder the world accuses him who brought the love of God to the people of hatred toward human beings. Did you hear that? He's saying that the sword on the earth is the cross. Uh, when, When Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean a literal sword made out of metal. He means the cross, because it creates division. It slices down the middle of families, and it separates husband from wife, daughter from mother, son from father, sibling from sibling. And it says, no wonder the world accuses him who brought the love of God to the people of hatred toward human beings. Disruption of the, of the biological family has always been something that has been abhorred. And people have always just like, oh, how can you do this? We should stay together. And this is time and time again, the, the complaint, the offense of Christianity. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. I was very struck by this. I was very struck by the... By the uh, the use of the word, the pronoun, there. Okay, he doesn't say our synagogues. You think like, hey, they're, like, they're all, like, all Jews, right? Why wouldn't he say our synagogues? Or maybe your synagogues, trying to get the disciples to, I'm sure they went to a lot of these synagogues. He says their synagogues. There is a division between Jesus and the system of religion of that day. And Jesus amplifies that. He says their synagogues, okay? Like that's that's their system over there. Jesus says that he's going to divide families and he's saying that I'm basically dividing you from the synagogue system of the world there. Okay. My fifth point is evangelism is not conquering. It's about vulnerability. Evangelism is not conquering, it's about vulnerability. All right, verse 16. There's four animals that are mentioned here in this verse. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Okay, so I mentioned that that calling people uh, in the world wolves isn't the most flattering. It's not super flattering to refer to us as sheep either. Um, you know, I I wish, I wish it was like, behold, I send you out as lions, or as tigers, or falcons, or some like inspiring animal like that. Uh, sheep are not are not uh, not my favorite animal there, but it's a it's a powerful image that Jesus uses there. And here I'm gonna read several quotes from the early church. Actually, uh, the, I got these from David Brousseau in his commentary on Matthew, but he did a great job at collating these. Listen to these. I think you'll find this fascinating. Tertullian, no one gives the name of sheep to those who fall in battle with arms in hand and while repelling force with force, but only to those who are slain, yielding themselves up in their own place of duty and with patience rather than fighting in self-defense. Okay, so it's a nice Comment there on non-resistance. He says, like, sheep don't go out carrying, <laughs> carrying arms. Uh, John Chrysostom, let those be ashamed who do the contrary, who pounce like wolves upon our enemies. For so long as we are sheep, we conquer. Although 10,000 wolves may prowl around us, we overcome and prevail. But if we become wolves, we are defeated. For then the help of the shepherd <laughs> departs from us. He does not feed wolves, but sheep. Isn't that beautiful? Um, So he basically says like, hey, stay sheep. Even if there's 10,000 wolves, that's okay. You're gonna win. But you switch over to becoming a wolf, you're gonna become defeated because you lose the help of the shepherd. Jesus feeds sheep, not wolves. Okay. Then he uses a somewhat surprising second uh, image to be wise as serpents. I can't stand snakes. Snakes are like easily my least favorite animal on the planet and I wish like oh, really serpent I think like that's like what the devil took the form of in the garden like Jesus surely you could have chose a better one here but in fact this is this is a a very appropriate metaphor so the vast majority of snakes out there even though snakes have a, a really bad reputation which they deserve but the vast majority of snakes they actually are very afraid of people, and they, like, they, they really don't want to be around people. Like Most snakes just like, get away from you as, as fast as they, they possibly can. And I think this is a statement that is worth meditating on here. There is a wisdom in a snake that flees persecution. Jesus later on says that we're supposed to flee persecution. He doesn't say to have to just kind of rush in and keep on... Going into places where you're not welcome so you can, you can get killed. Uh, this is, um, this is uh, the quote from Brunner I mentioned before. Uh, his portrait, Jesus' portrait of sheep among wolves, was to impress upon disciple missionaries that they are vulnerable. His portrayal, his, sorry, his portrait of snakes is to teach them not to be stupidly vulnerable. Okay? So he's saying, like, okay, yeah, you're weak, you're defenseless, you're like sheep among wolves. But you're, you're supposed to not be stupidly vulnerable, as it says there. I like that. There's a really interesting line that the, the early church goes down that I found intriguing, uh, which is how the snake handles danger. Does any, has anyone ever seen a snake respond to a threat? I, I remember this so well uh, at our, I don't know if I have time to tell the whole story, but uh, there. Um, there was a, a confrontation I had with a snake back at our old house uh, about an hour from here. And I still remember exactly how that snake positioned itself in that confrontation. It was clearly afraid of me. Anybody know what a snake does? What does it do? Coils. Yeah, it coils up. And where does it put its head? In the center. In the center. That's exactly right. So the early Christians picked up on this. Um, one, uh, this is Jerome, who says... The craft of the serpent is set before them as an example, for he hides his head within all the rest of his body that he may protect the part in which is life. So ought we to expose our body that we may guard our head, which is Christ. That is, we study to keep the faith whole and uncorrupt. It's kind of a beautiful metaphor there. Chrysostom says something very similar. The serpent gives up everything so that it may save its head. Christ says you are due to the same, giving up everything but the faith whether it be goods, body, or even life itself, we must yield these things. Okay, and then finally, uh, the image of doves. Okay, this one we get. Uh, doves are, they're peaceful, they're gentle, they're, they're always, they've always been a nice symbol of, of peace and gentleness here. Uh, I think everyone has always agreed on, on this one here. Chrysostom says, let us imitate the harmlessness of the dove that we may not retaliate against our wrongdoers nor avenge ourselves on those who lay snares. For beyond all others, Jesus knows the nature of things. He knows that fierceness is not quenched by fierceness, it is quenched by gentleness. Okay, my last point, my sixth and final point, is that evangelism is to be our crucible for growth. Evangelism is is to be our crucible for growth. It's striking to me that in this passage, there's very little that is promised in terms of success, right? It's not this, like, you're going to go out and convert all these people, and it's going to be amazing, and, like, there's, it's, it's not a, a particularly rewarding passage to read in that way. There's not success promised, and in fact, in distinction to that, agony and suffering and persecution are promised. There's, there's deep lessons that are embedded here, which are really about changing us as much as changing the people that are, are uh, the recipients of the gospel message. Okay, so in verse 17, Jesus says, Beware of men, it's anthropon there, so it's really beware of people, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Okay, so Jesus is saying there, Don't trust people because why? People have their own tribal loyalties. The vast majority of people aren't really loyal to Jesus. And when push comes to shove, they're going to revert back to whatever their home group is. They're going to deliver you up to a council uh, or scourge you in their synagogues. They might seem nice, but their loyalties are rarely truly to God. But then in verse 19, what does he say? But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. So here he says, don't trust yourself. <laughs> right? So in the previous verse, he says, don't trust people. And now he says, don't trust yourself. He says, like, don't go into some uh, some arrangement where you're in trouble with this big plan for some great message. Like you're going to give some eloquent speech. that's going to win people over. He says, this is the time for the Holy Spirit to speak inside of you. By the way, this is, in the New Testament, a crucial passage, this is, this is basically, we've seen the Holy Spirit a couple of times, but this is the first time that we're seeing the Holy Spirit as uh, giving us a, a power and an ability here, a ministering function of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so a couple observations here. One of the titles for the Holy Spirit is Comforter, right? We know that, that's in John. The Holy Spirit does not go to comfortable people, right? His ministry is to those who are distressed, who are troubled, who are persecuted, who are, who are having problems, why? Because they've gotten themselves into a difficult situation because of their evangelism. Do not kid yourself that you, you will have the Holy Spirit if you live a comfortable life, you won't. The Holy Spirit is given by God to comfort those who lack comfort. This is again why I stressed in the beginning this point that discipleship begins, it continues, and it ends with strategic relational discipleship. And I said that out of that, uh, sorry, strategic uh, relational evangelism, and out of that evangelism flows suffering and persecution. And there is the space that the Holy Spirit operates. Okay, so you are kidding yourself kidding yourself, royal joke, if you think that you can gain access to the comforter if you're living a comfortable life. You won't. And it is specifically Christian struggles that the Holy Spirit wants to minister to. Jesus gives this promise of basically powerful speech, right? He basically says, don't worry about it because you're going to have powerful speech. Now, the if we want to know about does this happen or not? We won't turn to these, but in the book of Acts, this is indeed what happens. So this is, I'll just read to you Acts 4.13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus just described there in Matthew 10. The famous speech that Stephen gives, where he's also marveled, gives this beautiful speech there. He didn't, he didn't have access to commentaries and libraries and notebooks and all that, right? He gets up and he gives this really powerful speech that, that moves and ultimately convicts the, the Sanhedrin uh, to the point of killing him. So this is fulfilled. This is totally fulfilled. I mentioned to you before that, that um, I, my... my uh, my college years, for my, those years there, I, would, I, would, I did so much evangelism. My regular time was every Friday night, but I would do it outside of that. And I can say that there were so many times been in difficult situations, hot situations, dangerous situations, and having such a peace in that hour. Just a couple of weeks ago, some of you were there for this. Some of you remember that screaming mother-son combination. right? They came out and were like yelling profanities and uh, the 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 sun came up like six inches to my face and was yelling at me. I was kind of worried he was going to punch me, um, but I can honestly say that in that moment I had like total peace, not not any fear in my heart. Um, it was it's just it's it's so great to be in those situations and to know that God is with you in that. Okay, so I, I mentioned that this point is evangelism is is being is supposed to be the crucible of our growth. Okay, so does, can anyone define what a crucible is? I know we sometimes use that word, but does anybody actually know what a crucible is? I looked it up. Okay. It's a severe test. Yeah, so that's the second, good. So that's the second definition. So the, the primary definition, and we're gonna go to the second definition. So the first definition is basically, and I'll read you actually here from a dictionary, A ceramic or metal container in which metals or other substances may be melted or subjected to very high temperatures. Okay, so for example, let's say you want to make brass. Okay, so you can take copper and other metals and put them in a crucible and get it really, really hot. And what will happen is the dross, that's like the contaminated part, will come to the top. You can skim that away. The rest of the metal is now liquid and it will mix with the other metal and you'll form a new... They call it an alloy, which is a blend of metals that you can use for, for whatever you're making out of brass there. But then at the 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 um, figurative use of that is exactly what you said. It's a situation, this is the dictionary again, a situation of severe trial in which different elements interact, leading to the creation of something new, OK? So this is, I uh, actually have a little uh, Prop here. All right. Okay, so what, what, what is this? A strainer. Strainer, there's another name for it. Colander. colander, yeah, same thing. Okay, so this is a strainer or a colander, right? So, so this is something we've all probably used. I think of this as you're making pasta or spaghetti, and you, you have all the water in there and in the pot, and you want to get rid of the water, and you dump it into this colander or strainer as a way to get rid of the water. There's a big difference between a colander and a crucible. I don't have a crucible here, but just picture like a a thick ceramic pot that is over here and contrast that with this. And I I think both of these are great pictures of discipleship. Okay, so in a crucible, that's over here, pretend. um, In a crucible, things are hot. They're really hot. They're designed to be hot. They're designed to melt. They're designed to get rid of of things and, they're, and a crucible is designed to be able to sustain really high temperatures, so you can make it even hotter so you can melt these metals. In a colander, I'm sure we've all used a colander, you dump your spaghetti or your pasta in this and the steam radiates off. Things get cool in a colander. Right? They, they tend to they go out of a pot where there's boiling water and they cool off in the colander. right? In a, in a, in a crucible, things melt together and they become unified. So that's like the main purpose of a a crucible is you want to take these pellets of metal or what have you there, and you want to make it into one strong substance. But as we all know, in a colander, if you dump your pasta or your spaghetti or your vegetables into the colander, they stay separate. Nothing changes there. If you've got separate pieces of pasta, it's going to stay a separate piece of pasta. The purpose of a secondary purpose of the crucible is to get rid of dross. The purpose of a colander is often to get rid of water, especially hot water. Now, I want you to think about these two pictures here, the crucible and the colander, as metaphors for discipleship. Jesus here in Matthew 10 is giving us a very hot picture of discipleship. I mean, you read this, people are being killed, people are being whipped, um, they're being scourged. Oh, by the way, I meant to mention this. Paul uh, alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says that he was scourged five times. He says he was scourged five times. Uh, think about that. Um, and he says he was scourged five times, 39 lashes. So in, in Jewish law, you were allowed to be scourged by the Jewish authorities up to 40 times. And so just to make sure they didn't go over that, they would go one under. Think about that testimony of being scourged 39 times, five different occasions. That's pretty amazing. Is your Christian life more of a colander? Is your discipleship experience more of a colander, or that of a of a crucible? As I said, if your life is not dominated by evangelism, this suffering and and um, hardship form of evangelism, then that would tell you that things are getting cool, and. You will notice if you are operating in the colander model that you're, the temperature of your spiritual life is going to go down, 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 down. You can look at individuals. You can look at communities. It just happens. It is the way that it happens. Uh, I shared some of this in Agape. Communities, however, communities and individuals that are committed to evangelism, they get hot. They unify. They blend. The dross, the dross is like the impurities, they spread away and they get, they get, they're, they're eliminated there. I wanna close by reading, um, reading one story, and one is a foreign story, and then I'll tell you a second story, which is from the U.S. right here in Boston, um, just to give you a sense and to ask about, is evangelism, is that a true crucible of your life, or are you cool, are you comfortable, are you more in the colander mode? Okay, so there's a true story. Uh, this is a story about an individual, his name is Kazim, who lives in Pakistan, I'll just read to you from the story. After eight days of being forced to chop wood from sunrise to sunset, Kazim hardly recognized the ax. Once ash white, its handle was now red from his bleeding hands. Now, will you cast aside this Christ's love? Asked Mohammed Shafiq, a, vi- a village elder. Will you come to your senses? Kazim was bent over, exhausted, thinking of his wife, Yasmin. Sweat dripped from the tip of his nose. His clothes reeked. He shook his head and exclaimed, no, never. You are a fool, uh, said Shafiq, raising his beating stick high as if he too were chopping wood. His face reflected a blend of satisfaction and frustration. With an audible oomph, he slammed the stick across Kazim's well-blistered back. Kazim yelled, grimacing and trying to find the will to withstand another blow quit loafing. The elder said, we need more wood. Before this persecution began, Kazim farmed by day, that was his day job, and evangelized by night. After one of his 12-hour days, he bicycled home to share a quick meal of chapati and rice with his wife, Yasmin. You're wearing yourself thin, she said to him. You cannot do it all. He looked at her, the woman whose smile still melted his heart. The sooner I spread God's word, the sooner I am back with you. He answered, and teasingly, took hold of her shawl, and pulled her close. Another day, while Kazim bicycled to the market, Shafiq forced him to stop. That's Muhammad Shafiq, same person. We know you have prayed in the name of Jesus, he said. Our prophet Muhammad is a true prophet. Your prophet is a liar. Jesus Christ is the true and living God, Kazim replied. I worship him and preach his message to other people. Is this true? The elder asked, his eyes squinting. Nodding his eyes slightly in mock threat, he continued. Well, let's see what your other people think of your worshiping and preaching this Jesus dung. D-U-N-G, dung. Shafiq turned to the crowd, scurrying from vendor to vendor. Did you hear this, my friends? He shouted above the din. This man, this lower-than-a-snake man, boasts that he bows before Jesus and gloats in telling others of this false God. Like angry bees, passers-by descended on Kazim. Joined by Shafiq, they dragged him away. That's why they forced him to chop wood until he would recant his faith in Christ. When he did not recant, they let him go. But one night, as Kazim prepared for his nightly ministry, Shafiq and five other militant Muslims confronted him again. Kazim beckoned his seven-year-old nephew, Rahid, to come to him. He turned to the boy. Today, I think they will kill me, he whispered. Please take my Bible and keep it with you. He then gently pushed the boy away as if his nephew were a little boat and Kazim were sending him off to sea. When Kazim turned his head, Shafiq brandished a semi-automatic pistol and anxiously fingered its trigger. He pointed at Kazim's head, "'Today I will shoot you "'if you do not accept the Prophet Muhammad "'as the one and only true Prophet.' Kazim looked intently into his eyes. "'I cannot do this. "'If you want to shoot me, do it. "'I will happily accept being killed.' But remember, if this is not God's will, you cannot kill me. Shafiq kept the pistol pointed at Kazim's head for a few minutes. Then his hand began to shake. He pulled out his cell phone and reporting to the police, and reported to the police that Kazim had tried to rob him. Later after Kazim arrived at the police station, officers initiated a new round of torture that lasted for thirteen days. They tied his hands behind his back, they beat the bottoms of his feet, they yanked on his beard. They dragged him across the dirt floor, mocked him, and spit him. Sometimes they stripped off his clothes and lashed his back and buttocks with a leather leather strap. This can all stop when you accept Islam, one man said. No. Finally, the police officers registered registered the false robbery charges against him and sent him to a district jail. Pain radiated through his shoulders and across his back. Four months after Kazim's arrest, he was released on bail. When he returned home, Yasmin was gone. Shafiq, his tormentor, had moved in and was using their possessions, claiming their livestock as his own, and reveling in his ownership of his new property. If you don't leave immediately, he ordered Kazim, I will shoot you and your wife when we find her. With only two dollars to his name, Kazim found Yasmin in the village. They fled, leaving everything behind. They stopped for help at the houses of various friends, but their friends kept turning them away, fearing that they too would be targets for persecution. They ultimately go and settle in a different village and find, uh, find help there. And um, to this day, he is, is, uh, uh, he's got a new job. He drives a rickshaw now, but his, his, uh, his MO is the same. He drives a rickshaw by day, evangelism by night. So I want to tell you now, so you, that, that's a, a story of pretty intense commitment, right? Pretty intense commitment to evangelism that I, I, I say that and I read that story because I hope it at least gives you some sense of like, wow, if people can live that degree of commitment, what can we do here? And I want to give you a story from Boston (coughs) because sometimes you hear stories from Pakistan and that can sound like a lot. Uh, This is a story that um, in the evangelism class, we have a speaker who who comes in and and tells the story, uh, which is uh, something that always moves me. He was part of a group that uh, started in Boston And uh, they started with 30 people. 12 years later, they had Um, 12,000. In the 1990s, they had 12,000 from 30. It took about 12 years to go from 30 to 12,000. It was all by doing evangelism. And um, this speaker in the evangelism class, which I hope many of you, if you haven't taken, will take, describes um, how he learned the ropes, uh, some of the ropes, at least, in doing this. And he describes how, of course, Boston, there's a lot of public transit, subway and buses, He would get on the bus with one of his friends, his friends in the same church, was an African-American guy, and what his friend would do is he would start at the front of the bus and say, hey, can I talk to you? Can I just uh, get to know you better? And he would, one by one, talk to every single person on the bus and have a spiritual conversation with that person and see if anyone was interested in Christianity. And the speaker in, in the class, in the evangelism class, talks about how mortified he was being with his friend, like... We're gonna do it again because of course most people say no most people are like get away from me you weirdo um, and he talks about how mortified he was but every time you get on the bus just do the circuit start at the front go all the way to the back uh, interestingly got a little bit of fruit not a lot there but guess who was won over after I think it was several months it was the bus driver <laughs> so the bus driver who kept hearing this message eventually gives his life to to God, and brought in some of his own relatives and cousins, and they began the cycle again. Now, you may not be able to picture yourself doing what what I read in the first story about Kazim. Could you do the second one? That was in Boston. That was right here, right in our locale here. Um, Or would you be just too shy, too cool, too apathetic, whatever it is, to stick your neck out to a degree like that? Um, It's bold. It's bold, right? But... Guess what happened out of that boldness was tremendous growth. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of insulting, a lot of, incur- a lot of insults, a lot of weirdo-type language gets thrown your way, but it's, it's, um, it's the cost that, that we have to pay. Now I'm going to go back and read my six points again, and we'll close in prayer. All right, the true Christian message inevitably incurs hatred. I gave you examples of how that emerges here, and I will again warn you, your pre- the pressure you will feel from the, till the day you die is gonna to be to cut away parts of the Christian message that are hard, that are offensive. It's gonna to be to gravitate to the world to remove this offense. My second point was that discipleship begins, continues, and ends with strategic relational evangelism. I showed you that in the Corpus of Matthew and how dominant this theme is in the Gospels and in Acts. Just adding those first two points together, we arrived at Christian suffering and persecution primarily come from evangelism. My fourth point was that Jesus' way dethrones the the idolatry of family and comfortable religion. My fifth point was that evangelism is not conquering, it's about vulnerability. And then my sixth and final point uh, was that evangelism is to be our crucible for growth. Again, my plea, my plea to everyone in this room is to not let this just pass over you. It's very very easy to think like, "Oh yeah, I'm okay." When God may, well, be speaking to you through the word saying, "Time to repent." If this was not your the fabric, the substance of your Christian journey here, it's time to repent and it's time to enter into this so that you can be refined and unified. Get away from the individualism of the calendar into the unity. Of the crucible. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, forgive us Lord for being so self-occupied and enjoying our our colanders, our strainers that are places where spiritual vitality goes away and we remain, remain these individual noodles who hardly have unity or life or heat in them. I pray that we could remember how powerful, scary this would be even to be the disciples hearing Jesus give this sermon of commissioning, sending them out into difficult situations among their own people. I pray that we would not fall prey to the idolatry of family, the idolatry of comfortable religion, the idolatry of individualism, but embrace this crucible that you've given us from the beginning of our Christian life, to the middle, to the very end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.